This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. I was here at the beginning of the Conscious Dying Movement in the West with Ram Dass and Stephen, Stephen Levine. And I would guess that if we went around the room, which we don't really have time to do, and asked each person what you thought conscious dying was, we'd get as many different answers as there are different people in the room. Conscious dying, of course, is the outgrowth of conscious living. And there are so many different ways to become more conscious. But I think that probably we have some basic notion that being conscious means being more present. Be here now, as a friend of mine once said. To me, though, the more I do this work, I think it's a lot more interesting and wonderful than that. It isn't just about being present. You can be present and not be very happy. I was just in my groups this last couple weeks. I've been talking to people about trust. And one of my group members sent me a link to a uh, YouTube video by Brene Brown, who's talking about trust. And she said that she had in interviewed 11,000 people in 12 years and found that there was not one person among those 11,000 people who felt joyous who was not doing one particular thing. What would you guess that one particular thing would be? Gratitude. Very good guess. You can meditate and not be a very happy person, right? You can, you can do yoga and be kind of grumpy. Uh, I, I know some of those people. I was some of those people, right? Another interesting tidbit of data that she came up with was that the most compassionate people she met were the most boundaried. Okay? So, boundaried, had the best, most appropriate boundaries. Not so much codependence floating around the room. There is a path to healing. The Dalai Lama on his third visit to America said, now I'm beginning to understand and it makes me very sad, you Americans don't like yourselves. So all of these wonderful Eastern practices that are so popular were developed by and for people 
who did not have an iPhone, who did not wear shoes, who were embodied, who loved their parents, and were grounded and centered. So that when we begin this healing path on the way to conscious living at its various depths and levels, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, which involves letting go of our identification with that which is separate and beginning to identify with that which is whole and does not die. It involves trusting the surrender into emptiness, into spaciousness, into un unconditional love. If we begin that surrender, if we begin that healing path from a place of not liking ourselves, of not being grounded and centered, one can, without too much imagination, I believe, see that not too far into that path, it's going to get pretty complicated. Because the person that's trying to surrender doesn't even trust who they are. So that whether we're talking about being a, quote, better meditator, which doesn't really make any sense at all, or if we're talking about conscious dying, or if we're talking about this path to healing and openness in whatever form it might take, for many people in the West, it is really useful to go back and start at the beginning, to have enough humility to realize that very often we aren't conscious, that we aren't embodied. That even right now as I'm talking, whether you think this is fascinating or wrong or interesting or stupid or whatever you think, is the energy going up in your mind? Is there this spinning going on trying to incorporate something or keep something from being incorporated? Or is it possible to drop down and be in your body and trust that whatever needs to come in in way of information will be coming in. So that I will do my best to entertain your brains for the next half hour or however long that is. But I would suggest that rather than this being a talk about something, could this be the living experience of us consciously living and consciously dying? Roger Ebert, the film critic who died not that long ago, had a very difficult neck facial cancer and not that long before he died, he was typing out answers to an interview questions about how his disease had affected him. And he said, as I'm typing this sentence, I don't know that I'm going to be alive to type the period at the end of the sentence. In Buddhism, before we even begin to practice, there's something called the four mind-turning truths, truths that turn your mind toward the Dharma, toward awakening. And the first of these truths is that you are going to die, but you don't know when. Completely intellectually obvious. And we are in a room here with almost everybody having a rather intimate relationship with death. But at the same time, don't we pretty much assume we're getting out of this room alive today? How to change this interaction if we didn't know that? If I looked at Charlie and I didn't know that I was ever going to see him again and one of us might be dead before who knows when, could we then be more alive, more loving? How alive are you willing to be? In any moment, there is really this tension between this wanting to awaken and the momentum between who we think we are. 
our identification with character structure that keeps pulling us back. And that we each have ways of running away from being present. We're all addicts. Everyone in, in this room is an addict. And whether you're not addicted to drugs or drinking or bad relationships, I'm addicted to understanding. I'm addicted to excitement and a bunch of other things that I won't mention so as not to completely ruin my credibility. <laughs> okay. Until we're completely free, we are addicted. So that in this moment-to-moment -moment way, there is this tension between how strong is my motivation? How much do I really know in my, in my heart of hearts that I'm going to die but I don't know when? Is that something that can really awaken me? One of my first meditation teachers, Trungpa Rinpoche, said that until one comes into intimate contact with death, one's spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. So that you can meditate till your knees almost fall off. And until you know you're going to die, you can get a, a better personality structure, you can become calmer, you can become a little nicer. But the, the true fruit that is the potential benefit of the surrender into the present will really not be available until we're ready again and again to surrender into that abyss. The mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses it. This first level of being is unconscious living. We, many of us, a lot of the time, are separated from reality by concept. We're not really in touch with our bodies, we're in touch with the concept of our bodies. We're not in touch with the people that we're around, we're in touch with the concept of who they are. We're in touch with the concept of death. I remember some years ago, I'd been working with dying a lot, I wasn't afraid of dying intellectually at all, but I was in a minor traffic accident that could have been much more severe. It was on a freeway, it involved a plumbing truck, plumbing supplies all over the East Shore Freeway, cars spinning, few dented fenders. And when my car stopped spinning, my legs didn't work. My body was afraid. So that even though you guys, us, have worked with death so much, if somebody were to hold your head underwater for long enough, I would guess that everybody in this room would be afraid. Fear of death is really at the root of all fear. And fear of death equals, in my mathematical mind, is exactly equal to lack of enlightenment. The place where I think I'm separate from you, where I might be embarrassed by saying the wrong thing or not being articulate enough today, that's the place where I'm afraid to die. That's the place where I think I'm separate. The place in me that would be embarrassed, I used to stutter a lot. I've had some electrical shocks. I fried my nervous system as a little kid. and. I stuttered a lot as a kid. I know what it's like to be embarrassed about speaking in public. But that's the place, once again, where I get caught in separateness. So that right now, and I'm going to say the two magic words I'll warn you. Suppose Donald Trump came into, the, came into the room, and we're right in the middle of the room here, right in the middle of this big circle. How many people could see a human being? 
and go beyond all the projections, all the concepts of president, good president, bad president, whatever your leanings, people are muttering over on that side of the room and making noises over on that side of the room, so that as long as we're being reactive, that will limit the conscious response, the wise, embodied response we can make to whatever it is that's out there. And that certain people in our lives, and particularly in our culture, dying people, carry such a strong identity that I'm sure you have noticed, many of you in your practices, that when somebody is approaching death, it's hard for many people to go beyond seeing the dying person or the cancer patient. Travis introduced herself as two weeks ago I found out I have brain tumors. Because, and I came here today because I want to be around people who can allow me to be that and not get all busy projecting how that might resonate your own fear of death. In English, when we're afraid, we say, I am afraid. And the very languaging of it tends to make it difficult not to become our passing mind-body states. In Spanish, when somebody's afraid, it is, yo tengo miejo, I have fear. And I don't speak Tibetan, but in Tibetan, when you're afraid, you say, fear is here. How much easier would it be not to identify if you were a native Spanish-speaking person? Or even better yet, somebody who could look at it from that per Tibetan perspective, that fear is just the passing mind-body state, just like what's for lunch. But because of our conditioning, we grab onto that thought. It drives so much of our lives. The first stage in conscious living and preparation for conscious dying, and fortunately, there's not a lot of special preparation for conscious dying. It's all conscious living. If one just slides right into the other. We don't, there are a few special practices at the very, very end of life, but 99% of it is what you've done up until that point. So the first step is can we become embodied? Can we be sitting in the room right now inhabiting our body? Let's think of a hypothetical little girl who was just born and the first couple years of her life, the lesson that she needs to learn is being grounded, trusting that it is safe to be dependent that she can just let herself trust that she's supported and will get what nourishment she needs to live the next moment of her life. And if you have an enlightened mother, congratulations, you are completely grounded. If your mother was not completely, let's have a show of hands, okay. <laughs> if, if your mother was not completely enlightened, then probably she had her own issues she was there as much as she could. I had very loving parents, but certain things happened to me accidentally that caused me to believe the world is not a particularly safe place. The demon of being grounded, the emotion that makes it hard to be grounded is the emotion of fear. And whenever fear arises, we almost always project it outward on we're afraid of something out there. We don't experience it directly. And we jump up into our minds as a way of how can I protect myself from what it is that I'm feeling right now. 
conscious fear is a really remarkably awakening state. Anger, sadness, happiness, calmness, much easier to be awake for. I would suggest as a practice, can you be consciously afraid? And even notice when you're going to go into a situation that you think there's a good chance that fear might arise, anxiety might arise. There is a very simple practice that we're all going to do together. It's not a meditative practice. You don't have to put your water down on the floor. You can keep holding on to it. You don't have to sit up straight. You can keep crossing your legs. But as you're breathing out, can you imagine that you're pushing an energetic egg out through the base of your perineum into the earth? And as you're breathing in, you're receiving energy that is grounding and supportive. You're surrendering down into the earth that supports and nourishes not the earth of dirt and worms and rocks. If you like, you can tighten those perineal muscles a little bit. It's not a muscular exercise, but it's inhabiting your base. And when you inhabit the base, you're not afraid. Even if you're dying, even if you're talking to a bunch of strangers, dropping down into the base. Is there anything that I'm going to say during the rest of this talk that's more important than you being grounded? Notice how grabbing onto certain clever things that I say will pull you out of being grounded. No judgment, nothing to repress, nothing to judge, but just notice how energy goes up, energy goes down. We become unpresent. Mind so seductive. Now, this energetic stance of being grounded, as supportive and nourishing as it is, is not particularly designed for driving an automobile or talking to other people. It's about being dependent. It's about being zero to two years old. And the other developmental stages, though they're built upon that, are much more appropriate for conscious living. So the next stage from two to five is being centered, the place from which martial arts are done, the lower belly, the hara, the dantian, the martial art of being you, the martial art of being a nurse or a therapist or a dying person or a living person or whatever identity that you or people you're around might be bringing with you. And being centered is just what the name, the word itself implies that you're right at the center of the universe. You're at the very center of gravity of who you are energetically and physically. So once again, without getting ungrounded, can you breathe out and drop down into your lower belly as if you were surrendering into the belly? And instead of paying attention to the belly, can you pay attention from the belly? Can you hear my voice from your center? Can you trust that you can have this gut relationship, this gut reaction to what's going on in the room right now? Being grounded and centered is the somatic equivalent of mindfulness meditation. It is bringing mindfulness into the body. And I find that for many people, myself certainly, that having a somatic component to my meditation practice in a remarkably busy and intense and wonderful life it's useful to have this body to keep coming back to.
even now as I'm talking. I'm really talking from, right now, I'm talking from my belly. I hope you're listening from your belly. When we're able to be mindful in the mind, when we're able to be mindful in the body, then one begins to identify with the knower. Okay, we've gone from not knowing and being unconscious to I'm the knower, but the knower still is somebody that can die. We haven't gotten yet to non-duality in the place where there's nobody to die. There's still 30 people in this room, women, men, older, younger, bigger, smaller, more hair, less hair, happy, not so happy, really happy, all these differences. In that dimension, each of us knowing those things, we will die. The point is that we're creating here a foundation, a very robust way of going into the world where we'll hopefully at least at times be able to rest in that which does not die. Now we've all read Stephen Levine's books, or a lot of us maybe, or other things about conscious dying, and I've been doing this work almost as long as Stephen did, and I will say that in all these years, very few people died in the way that Stephen suggested, <laughs> which was, I kept thinking that everybody's gonna die with the, you know, the harps and the, the angels, and, but often there's a lot of psychology mixed up with the dying process, as I'm sure many of you have seen. However, as caregivers, to the point that we're this living model, no matter what your role is, whether you're a friend or a professional or a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse, to the extent that you are resting in that place of not being afraid of dying, or that when fear does arise and you can work with that fear in a living moment-to-moment -moment way, that is a really different message that you're bringing to your friend, patient, client than if you're saying all these really clever things, but that somewhere in there you're still really being bound up by your fear of death. So that then the next stage of being conscious is not just being aware, the next stage of healing is not just being present, grounded, and centered, but it's opening our heart. It's able to be compassionate with the suffering that you and I see within us and all around. So it's possible to be aware of something and still keep closing your heart to it. Healing requires contact with the sacred. If the heart's not open, the sacred will be veiled. This foundation from zero to two, two to five, grounded and centered, present. Then this little girl, five to eight, is learning to be loving, compassionate, grateful, forgiving, devotional, having more conscious relationship. And the energetic lesson that she has to learn, as Brene Brown's study would suggest, and as I have been suggesting for a long time, is appropriate boundaries. When I lead my ongoing small groups, and I, use, I say the word boundaries, often a groan arises from the room because most people have some intuitive knowing that most of their suffering comes from bad boundaries. And boundaries can be used to exclude and to include. Can we each have a boundary that includes the whole room so there's not 30 boundaries 
bumping into each other with one big boundary where we're loving each other inside of. That'd be a very different talk. But interestingly enough, the energy that with which we create a boundary is the energy that comes from being centered, from being independent and autonomous, the martial art of being you. If you're not independent and autonomous, who's going to have the strong boundary, the appropriate boundary? And who's going to be independent if you haven't trusted being dependent? So these are developmental stages. Maybe you expected that I was going to come in here today and talk about what happens when we're dying and things right at the very end of life. And I have found that the more I do this work, it is not about dying, it's about healing. That until the very last 18 breaths or whatever it might be, everybody is interested in healing. It's not about conscious dying, it's about how can I, how can we be more whole in this moment? Right now, I'm assuming that everybody's really grounded and centered. Can you breathe into your belly and feel that sense of strength in your lower belly down there a little bit below your navel and maybe up above we're kind of glomming the second and third chakras here on together, if you will? Lower belly, and that supports the heart opening. Can we breathe into the belly and have a boundary that's as big as this room? That everybody, your joy, your suffering, your wellness, your illness, your confusion, your wisdom, is within this one being that is this room. And if that doesn't feel safe to you, then maybe you want to have a boundary that includes you, your skin boundary, your you know, boundary that goes 6, 12 inches beyond your boundary. And at times, it's useful to have a, a small, strong boundary. I lived in Manhattan for a while, and I was really, really, really into meditation at that point. Uh, I hadn't had a negative thought form for two days. And I thought, I'm going to go down to the corner of 42nd Street and 6th Avenue and open my boundary to the passing of humanity. And within 10 minutes, I felt like throwing up. I overestimated <laughs> something very important. <laughs> okay. Once again, if in opening your boundary, you start feeling ungrounded, you start feeling uncentered, we go back to an earlier stage and put that quality back together. But now, we're, we're going beyond the knower to, is there something that doesn't die? Is there just the knowing? In the beginning, first stage, unconsciousness, we're lost in what, what is known. Fear arises, we become fear. We know the fear, we get lost in it. The second stage is we're not lost in it, we're the knower. I am here, I'm the observer, I'm the witness. But now we're saying, can we go beyond even being the witness? Can we go beyond even being the heartfelt witness? and begin to surrender into that which does not die. Now, that's a pretty big leap. And yet, the quality of the open heart is something that leads us very naturally into that spaciousness, because there are defining qualities of the open and compassionate heart. One of the qualities is spaciousness. There's not a lot of I, me, mine. In fact, there's none as compassion deepens. So that what we're suggesting here is that your heart is big enough to include all the suffering in the universe. Not just your own, not just the suffering in this room, 
All the people who are dying right now, all the babies who are starving to death, all the people that just found out they have cancer, all the people who are being abused at this very moment, all the people who are being crushed under the thumb of the dictatorship, of the oppressor, all of that suffering does not begin, it does not even come close to filling your heart because your heart is boundless. Now, we've had that experience in moments, but then again, that conditioning, we're not that big. I've got to protect myself. We come back to that being stuck in the beginning and maybe we have to get grounded and centered again. Maybe we have to be aware of how thinking about the politics of the day or the economics of the day or the social conditions of the day or the medical industry's part in all of this. Or on and on and on. You can, you can pick your poison. I use the word on purpose. You can pick what it is that closes your heart. And can you open your heart to that? I remember once I was giving a talk to the Northern California Psychiatric Association. It was in one of the local hospitals, one of those big theater seating rooms. So there was hundreds of psychiatrists as far as the eye could see, if you could imagine that. And at this point, George Bush, the younger, was president, and John Ashcroft was the attorney general. And I said to the psychiatrist, until you can open your heart to John Ashcroft, you cannot open your heart to your patients. And half of them got it, and the other half started very loudly complaining. <laughs> okay. Ramdas, many times I've come into his home and he's had an altar where there's Jesus and Maharaji and Hanuman and Buddha and George Bush. <laughs> or probably Donald Trump is on his, his altar today. Anything that closes your heart, that person will be in the, at your bedside when you are dying. That person will be holding your hand. That person will be in bed with you when you are dying. And it's not that we're liking, wanting to be around these uh, images, these people, but it's do those concepts keep closing our heart? And as long as there's anything that can close your heart, that will arise in the dying process. So in that sense, this political environment we live in is fantastic. I mean, all I've got to go into a room, do is go into a room and say Donald Trump, and there's a whole two-hour workshop right there ready to go. <laughs> People, and I, I'm not saying even just from the Democrats, from the, I mean, it's both, instead of seeing that as a problem, that is my preparation for dying. That is what is helping me begin to open to those places that I have been unconsciously pushing away for a long time. And time has really been flying. What I'd like to do is one last practice, and then we'll leave a little time for some discussion. I'm going to talk. I'm going to just keep saying words for a little while. And I'd like you to be aware of just listening. There's listening going on. I'm talking. There's listening going on. There's listening going on. And I'd ask you then to be very aware of what it is that continues when I stop talking. Is there an awakeness, an aliveness 
that's there. Watch your breath. There's a breathing in, there's breathing out. There's movements happening in your abdomen as you're breathing in and out. Between the in-breath and the out-breath, between the out-breath and the in-breath, what is there when there's no movement? Is there a quality of awakeness, of aliveness, that is there in those gaps, that is there even during the breathing, during the listening? Is there something that's always there that's so familiar that we don't even notice it? Pure awareness, consciousness, that is in no way affected or tainted or changed by the content of our consciousness. Moment to moment, consciousness and content of consciousness inextricably one. It's not that there's an outer reality that our inner awareness is grabbing onto, much as our mind would like to think that. Is there something that is not dying, that is completely unchanging, moment to moment to moment, no matter how lovely or horrible the mind or the body might be experiencing? Can we rest there? with the foundation of mindfulness, grounded and centered embodied mindfulness, open heart, leading then to this resting in that which is not changing. And imagine then dying in this state rather than a fearful state, an agitated state, or even maybe the body's agitated, maybe the body's in a lot of pain but you're resting in consciousness. You're resting in awakeness. It all in a way goes back to the very beginning to motivation. How awake do you want to be? And I think most of us want to be awake and we want it not to hurt too much along the way. And again and again, there will be a choice between do I want the truth or am I going to grasp at happiness? There is a joy that transcends happiness and sadness. And if it's happiness that we're grabbing at, we're having to juggle. Is this a happy or not happy making experience right now? If we're going into the truth, joy will follow. So we have about 10 minutes for discussion, questions, and answers. Fear will come from a lot of different directions. And depending on your personality structure, some of it you'll deal with much better than others. Apparently, in a crisis where dogs want to eat you, you did really well. And maybe the day-to-day -day anxiety of your job, not so much. When we are caught in a sense of I, two things happen somatically. Our shoulders come up a little bit, and our belly contracts. So there are three things to do. Release the shoulders. Stephen Levine talked about soft belly. Uh, you let your belly become soft, but you also let it become strong. You bring strength down there. This quality of dropping down is the quickest way to go beyond fear.
There's a wonderful story about Milton Erickson, the guy that developed hypnotherapy. And when he was quite elderly and frail, he was at a conference in Manhattan, and he was walking home late at night to his hotel, and a mugger came up and said, give me your money or I'm going to stick this knife in you. And he said, it's 11 o'clock, and he walked away. <laughs> and the guy said, I guess I can't stab somebody who's deaf or doesn't, didn't hear me. <laughs> and he just gave me the time of day. But the, the point is that, yes, fear is really a difficult emotion. For most of us, the most difficult emotion. Learning to practice the sense of being grounded and centered you seem to suggest in the way you presented the question that there's certain parts of your job, that lead, or at least certain parts of your life, that lead to anxiety. There can be a practice where 75% of your attention is inward. Am I present? Is my heart open? Am I grounded and centered? And 25% is out there. You're out there in the world enough that you're, you're stopping at traffic lights. You're not sounding like a complete fool when you're talking to people. But you're taking care of yourself in a moment-to-moment -moment way, that, you're being that you are trusting your basic wisdom and your basic goodness. You trust it more than all those fear messages you got growing up. And a lot of times you won't. And then you notice that. And you forgive yourself. And you don't judge yourself. It's just an ongoing moment-to-moment -moment process. So you're having compassion for another person. And all of a sudden, you notice you're anxious. And then you have compassion for yourself. And then you notice that you can't have compassion for yourself. So you get grounded and centered for the person who can't have compassion for yourself. And then you lose that. And you're centered in relationships that are not being centered. It's just that wherever you find yourself asleep, you awaken. And when you awaken, can you come back to being present through compassion? Compassion isn't learned when the dogs mouth is at your neck, or the doctor says, look, I've got really bad news for you. Compassion is learned in that very simple moment where you're meditating, or you're looking at somebody you care about, or you're walking on the beach, and you notice you've been lost in your mind. You're not even there. Can you come back to being present with kindness? Or is there some jerking thing? You're not a very good meditator. You're not, look at, there you're on the beach, and you're thinking about that other stuff. What kind of an idiot are you? You know? Can you come back in a very gentle way? OK, so a difficult emotion arises. And very often, it's accompanied by a narrative, concepts about the object of the emotion, the subject of the emotion, the relationship, all this complicated stuff. First step, can you let go of the narrative and feel what you are experiencing in that moment? You lean into, rather than pull back from, what probably is a slightly or not so slightly unpleasant sensation in your body. The second step is then, can you open your heart to that? Can you not only experience that, but can you accept it? Can you be grateful for, in this moment, I'm feeling this? Can you bring a, a tenderness to your relationship with a difficult emotion? And in that tenderness, in that openness, in that acceptance, healing will happen. Maybe not immediately. My first guru, Bob Dylan, said, what price do we have to pay to get out of going through all these things twice? And it's, be, it's being completely there 100%. So that what I'm suggesting here, we probably do it 82% or 84% or 3%, depending on 
you know, how, how, what our relationship is to that particular emotion. But that is the healing path. You have to be present with it, you open your heart to it, and realize that it is only that. And here's something I don't say to my clients, but it is true, suffering is only suffering. Cancer does not cause suffering. Dying does not cause suffering. Resistance to cancer causes suffering. Resistance to dying causes suffering. And to the extent we can remember that it's our relationship with difficult emotions that's causing the suffering, one can be all agitated. I mean, I've been around people who are dying. They're in so much physical pain, they're writhing on the bed. And I say, how are you doing today? And they say, I've never felt better in my life. Because they're not identified with the body in that moment. And we cannot be identified with the passing emotion. Who are you? I will leave it at that. Thank you very much. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.